for I have not found your works complete before my God. The Lord continues, my friends, to speak through his epistle to the Bishop of Sardis, and he tells him that I did not find your works complete or fulfilled in front of my God. This, in addition to his statement that we studied last week, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead, and I did not find your works complete or fulfilled in front of my God. And we need to pay much attention to this because this is a bit of reality many times because it is possible that our works appear to be adequate or sufficient, even rich in front of our community members, assuming that we exercise some relative piety, we are actively involved in our church, and this may impress some of our community members, but this may be adequate in the eyes of men only. However, this fulfillment of works can only be judged by God. It is significant that God looks and seeks for this fullness. And as St. Andrew of Caesarea says, the beginning of good works does not crown the worker, but the completion of those works. So it is not enough to make a good start towards good deeds, but we must strive to become complete and full of good deeds. Where are all those people who think that they will be saved only because they confess Christ at some point in their life and they don't care about this fullness? They go along with a couple of the commandments while ignoring the rest. Now, what are the works that the Lord requires this fullness from? It is the way we live, our entire conduct and citizenship. We cannot claim that I keep commandment A or B. Let's not forget that the keeping of all the commandments creates in us a certain mindset, a way of thinking, a fullness of personality. A man who keeps the commandments of God is a complete human being, truly wholesome, intact. St. Paul says, that the men of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 17. And elsewhere, the apostle says, not lacking in anything. So we should not fall short. We should not be inadequate in anything. We often hear, you know, that person has some good qualities, but it's a shame he also has that little problem. He has certain flaws. This must not be. Many times, and this is nonsensical, of course, we seem to get some satisfaction and uh, we're somewhat proud of our flaws, which may get us some attention. And some people may even praise this defect of ours. Oh, he's a good man, but he likes his booze a little bit. He likes his wine. And the one who may have a great attachment to wine, even though it's a passion, one of the worst passions, alcoholism is a horrible passion, he may boast. He does not seem to care. And there's a number of flaws that people, unfortunately, are not only ashamed of, but they boast about. However, as we said, Christ expects a fullness of works, the keeping of all the commandments, which affects the way we think, the way we carry ourselves, how we live, how we walk, how we move, how we talk, how we think. All these things show if we have fullness of works or not. I must also tell you that this fullness varies greatly in depth. It is not enough to keep the commandments at a minimal level to do the get-by, but we must exercise these commandments at a certain depth. Please allow me, allow me to say that each commandment has an unfathomable depth, and we cannot say that we exhausted a certain commandment or we kept that or this commandment. Let's never say that we applied fully commandment A or B in our life. Never. Don't say that you keep the day of rest perfectly, the seventh day, the Sabbath, Sunday, by simply not working that day. There's a great depth in this commandment. How do you spend this day? What do you do? How is your conduct? And how is your worship towards God? What kind of level has your worship reached? 
Are you getting close to a life of mysticism? Are you beginning to reach a certain vision of God? If you are getting close to these things, then you will be ready to admit that you are still at the surface and not at the depth of the commandment. But usually those that speak about reaching a depth are those who do not even suspect how great this depth may be. And while they find it easy to speak about a depth, they always stay at the surface. Therefore, fullness of works has width and depth and equates rebirth to become a new creation in Christ. So the meaning of the verse, I did not find your words complete or full in front of my God, can be this. You are not reborn yet. You are not a new creation. And this is depressing. This is a depressing observation for the Bishop of Sardis. And we continue with verse 3 of chapter 3. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. So remember and wake up. The tone is one of a wake-up call. It serves to shake up and to remind the past, which is always a strict reproach. We can see here the necessary element of this remember, a very needed element in our life. We see this in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, when Abraham uses this awakening, remember my son, but woe to him because this remember cannot rectify anything. It is way too late for him. And this remember in hell will serve to increase the suffering. He tells him, remember, my son, that you already received your reward in your earthly life. So this remember can serve to rectify things here in this life or to increase our suffering in hell. The same word. If we must remember, and it is not late, this memory makes us return to the right path. It makes us get started again. If we, mu if we must remember, but we cannot correct, we cannot correct ourselves, then this is hell. Let's not forget that memory will be at a perfect state in the kingdom of God. And this memory also exists in hell. And as we said, this memory does not diminish by age. There is no age. There's no aging factor in the afterlife. So memory is always sharp. In this present life, we remember things and forget things. As we age, we have increasing memory loss. But even when we are young, we don't remember all our deeds. They are not in front of us every minute, every hour. Our memory is limited. We remember but a fraction of our past deeds here. But not there. There is no limitation to the memory once we leave this life. Our memory will be perfectly alive. Our memory will be in front of us as a constant reminder of our evil deeds. And it will torture us. Because as you suspect, my friends, hell would not make any sense without this memory. In the absence of memory, the one being punished could say, what is the reason of my suffering? I don't understand what I'm doing here. However, when he has in front of him the complete memory of his entire earthly life, the memory of his horrible sins and actions, then he fully understands the reason of his punishment. He justifies his punishment. The Lord often repeated in his Gospels, Manimonevete, or bring to your memory, or remember, remember Lot's wife. He especially instituted the very sacrament of divine Eucharist as a remembrance of his person and his suffering or passion. When he said, do this in remembrance of me, to remember me. Of course, the sacrament is not limited to to the purpose of a uh, souvenir. It is not a souvenir, something for memory's sakes. It is not like taking an item from a friend and we say, I will have this to remember you, as a, uh, to have it as a souvenir. The sacrament is not simply a souvenir, but a remembrance, a constant reminder, because the Lord himself is present.
the bread and the wine, his body and his blood, a real presence. And consequently, this is a memory of his presence. So someone can see a great power in the area of memory. Memory connects the present with the past without a recess. This is why the Bishop of Sardis is being called upon to remember how he received and heard. Received and heard what? The gospel. How he was catechized. How he became a Christian. How the gospel entered his life. And how he allowed his zeal for the gospel to weaken to the point where the life of the Bishop of Sardis was paralyzed. Hold fast and repent. In every one of his epistles, when the Lord has something to correct, when he must reproach, he also offers the only way of cure and correction, the way of repentance. This repent is a stereotype in all the commandments. I repeat, it is the stereotype, the stereotype correction method for all the commandments. And the Lord says, repent in all the epistles. We could very well say that the entire Christian faith is a constant repentance, a constant return towards God. All works pertaining to ourselves or towards other people in the final analysis must be characterized by the spirit of repentance or metania. Otherwise, they are not acceptable to God. Did we hear this? If in the relations between ourselves the other people, and God, we fail to see the stamp of repentance, of incessant repentance, our works are unacceptable to God. Repentance is the constant state in the life of the faithful, in the life of the church. This up to the last breath, up to the last point where the soul leaves the body, up to that very moment, repentance must exist. However, it is obvious that the shepherding energies of our church do not, do not always seek out and do not result in repentance. I must tell you this because in the last years, we have been heavily influenced by the West, from the Roman Catholics and the Protestants. The Protestants do not have a church. They are not a church. They're simply communities and denominations which have swarmed in Greece. There are at least 50 denominations that are actively seeking followers here in Greece. So we have been under some of the influence of these people. Not to mention that our people travel in foreign countries. We also have the heavy influence of tourism. And all these have made an impression on our people, how the European and the American people act and move about, the West in general. And we see that the Christianity of the West centers around the creation of hospitals, nursing homes, spiritual centers, philanthropical deeds, Christian political parties, socialisms, all these things that I was telling you during our last meeting. And over the year, the church in Greece has been criticized because it does not participate in these social activities. Where's the church, people ask? Why isn't the church housing the homeless or opening soup kitchens or opening orphanages? something similar to the Catholic social agencies. But these things do not have the stamp of repentance. So whether the church participates in these or not, if they are not connected to the gospel and to repentance, and the final purpose is not to evangelize, then what's the use? We have communities with the so-called spiritual centers for the youth where the young people can play games, have fun, ping pong, computers, video games. But do we cultivate a spirit of repentance alongside all these things? Or do we limit ourselves to some basketball or soccer tournaments? It is nice to have slideshows, video cassettes, spiritual movies to keep our kids off the streets. But do we also cultivate the spirit of repentance? Again, all these activities are nice, but from the moment that we fail to create a spirit of repentance along with these activities, then it is more obvious than obvious that the church is no longer on the right path. It is off course. It has been influenced. 
It has espoused the Western mentality, which tugs and pulls our church. This is most unfortunate, and most of us fail to see this. I'm telling the truth. A church that keeps and maintains the spirit of repentance on the front burner, stressing it to the faithful, and by doing so, souls are being earned for the kingdom of God. Only this church is walking the true path. I believe that your instincts and your inner sense must help you to see this, to see the right way. Because, my friends, if I don't have repentance, but I possess great social graces, I'm refined, I'm civilized, I'm polite, but I fail to have repentance, I simply live my life nicely, politely, will I enter the kingdom of God? I will not. And since I don't enter, I have failed. I miss the boat. This is why I told you that a church that does not stress and promote the need for repentance at all times, this church is of no help. It does not help people to gain their salvation. But you may tell me, must we always speak about repentance? But this is it. Do you fall? You must keep repenting. I will always speak to you about repentance, my brother, just I talk to myself. Why? Because I fall. Now, if you could tell me, if you could assure me that you no longer fall, then I would stop talking to you about repentance. But being that we fall, now who can boast and who can, who can claim that he does not fall? We fall. And since we fall, we are in need of repentance on a daily basis. If we want to be saved, that is. It goes without saying. And if this repentance does not register in our life, then the Lord comes with a threat. And he says to the bishop of Sardis, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come up, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Here, as you can see, the Lord names himself a thief. It is one of the many names of Christ. Christ takes on many names, light, way, life, the door, lamb, a great number of names. If you would search the New and Old Testament, you would find many dozens of names, if not hundreds of names, for the person of Christ. If we could search with a vision of the church fathers, if we had the eyes of the fathers, we would see hundreds of these names. One of the names of Christ is also this thief. He says, I will come to you as a thief. The Lord speaks this way in the Gospels, as well, he says, for instance, in Matthew 24, verses 42 to 44, stay awake because you don't know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Men. Because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And as St. Paul points out, the day of the Lord is like a thief in the night. That's how Christ will come. When people say peace and safety and prosperity, when people brag about world peace and security, we feel globally confident and stable, then they will be faced with sudden destruction. Just like the labor pains or the birth pains come upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should not overtake you as a thief. Clearly, the Lord here appears as a thief. But for who? For whom? Let's pay attention. For those who do not believe, those that do not believe in him and don't expect him, or if they do expect him, they expect him in the very distant future. According to the verse, my master is very late. My master is extremely late, as the Lord says about the evil servant on this point. So for those who do not believe in Christ, or they don't expect him to come back, or they expect him very late, for all these people, the Lord will come as a thief. But for those who are expecting him very eagerly, those who are full of expectation, the Lord is rather delaying his coming. He's somewhat delayed because they are 
fully consumed by the expectation of his coming. He cannot come soon enough for these people. Lord, when would you come? And every day that goes by, they ask, Lord, when will you come? Time is passing by. When will you come? For these people, obviously, he's not a thief. He's a thief in the night. For these people, he's delayed. But we also have those in the epistle of Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, who say, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So what Lord will come? What second coming of Christ? Forget about it. And for these, that day will be sudden. But for those who feel his presence and are full of expectation, they feel that he's delaying and not slack about his promise, but long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. However, the threat that is directed towards the bishop of Sardis shows that the bishop was not vigilant. He was not awake. He was not sincere in his expectation of Christ's second coming. He was neglecting his missionary deeds, his spiritual deeds, and the spiritual needs of his flock. Listen, he was negligent towards the spiritual nourishment of his flock. This also concerns you as well, my friends, not just the shepherds, priests, and bishops, because this threat of the Lord applies to the shepherds of all times, especially to the shepherds of our days, who may have given up on the coming of our Lord altogether. Because you may ask, are there shepherds today who do not expect Christ's coming? And they don't even care or even believe in Christ? It seems that way. It seems that way. How else can some of their actions be explained? I don't know how else some of these things could be explained. Because when we run into clergy with such terrible conduct, we can only assume that this man, this shepherd, cannot possibly believe in the coming of Christ. What am I saying? He does not even believe in the person of Christ. However, the Lord, my friends, warned us about these shepherds. Because when you have shepherds who do not care about you, about your salvation, I told you this at a previous class, you must do whatever it takes to take care of yourselves. Just like when we do not have competent teachers or we have a shortage of teachers, we do our best to learn. The parents try to find ways to teach their children. They go to no end to teach their children how to read and write. The same must take place in spiritual matters. I am repeating to you, I'm repeating this over and over again. Do not stand still if you see that we are not concerned about your spiritual needs, if we are not good shepherds. Take care to guide yourselves, educate yourselves as best as you can. Look out for yourselves. You will be held accountable. The absence of good shepherds is not always a valid excuse. But let's listen what the Lord says in Matthew 24, verses 45 to 51. Who then is the faithful and wise steward whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? The faithful and wise servant, not just faithful, but wise as well. And where would his wisdom lie? to know what portion, what spiritual portion to give, the portion of spiritual food, to know which portion to give, how much to give, and when to make the spiritual food available to the people. For example, if we set up a table for you and we force you to eat five plates of food, you will throw up. On the other hand, if we fail to offer you food at mealtime, you will starve, you'll go hungry. What must take place? The very thing that the Lord says, to have the food be given in due season. Each one must be given at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. To be fully devoted to his flock and to give them the proper nourishment. But if the evil servant says in his heart, 
And the Lord here sees that inside history, evil will always exist along with evil shepherds. He's not referring to his 12 disciples. The 12 disciples were good servants, but he refers to the evil shepherds in general throughout history. And here it says, but the evil servant says in his heart, my master is taking a very long time. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. So he will begin to take advantage of the flock. He begins to lord it over the faithful in a very inappropriate manner. Very inappropriate for a shepherd or a spiritual leader. So he begins to eat and drink with those who like to get drunk. He lives in licentiousness. He begins to live the good life. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Live for the day. Enjoy life. Life is so short, so let's live it up. The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and on an hour that he's not aware of. Oh, how dreadful. How dreadful for this evil servant. The Lord will come as a thief in the night. However, the faithful servant, when he stands in front of the holy altar, he says, maybe I will die. This could be my last divine liturgy. The Lord is near. And he monitors his life and his thoughts according to this expectation. However, the evil servant will be cut in two and his portion will be appointed with the hypocrites. What is this cut in two? The separation of soul and body or death. The evil servant will face death and his portion will be with the hypocrites. His soul will be placed in the section of the hypocrites. Why? Because of his hypocritical lifestyle, he was pretending to be a shepherd. However, he was a wolf. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be deep remorse with no repentance. The unpardonable and remorsefulness, the dreadful hell. For this reason, my friends, the Lord addresses the Bishop of Sardis, who was neglecting the spiritual development of his flock was not making progress spiritually and the Lord calls him dead how many of the priests and the bishops today would fall under the same category as the bishop of Sardis and the Lord should turn to these bishops and priests as well how many but this is a sign of the times my friends hold on as best as you can any way you can hold on but you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So here we have it. Inside this seemingly alive, but in reality, dead church of Sardis, we have a hopeful sign. These few names. These are a few persons, a few individuals. Listen, listen, a few, a few names, a few persons. These wonderful few, very few. But that's okay. These few live their life according to the life of God, despite the spiritual death of the bishop. Do we see this? The bishop's life did not stop these few individuals from being sincere, faithful, and alive in Christ to live a true Christian life. But what is the undertone of the expression, you have a few who did not defile their garments? This very book of the Revelation gives us a most touching image about those who did not pollute their garments. Please pay attention. It can be found in the 14th chapter, and I will offer an analysis on this paragraph because it is directly connected with the epistle to the Bishop of Sardis, and especially since it will take us a great deal of time to reach chapter 14, if we're still alive, since it took a whole year to cover three chapters, we will need quite some time to make it to chapter 14. And by then, we will have forgotten a lot of this information. So for this reason, I don't believe it will hurt if we jump ahead occasionally to look at some pertinent points. However, here, as I told you, there is a direct connection. Let's read chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, 
having his father's name written on their foreheads. These are the ones who were not defiled by women, for they are virgins. Now here, this not defiled may initially give the impression that they were pure from fornication. But this is not a matter of avoiding fornication. This has to do with those who avoided marriage altogether. Now, why does this defilement apply in the case of marriage? What can I tell you? That the woman needs to receive a prayer of purification after she gives birth? But what is impure? St. Nicodemus says, he asks, blood? But blood is the foundation of life. Is the born child impure? By no means. It is a brand new creation, a brand new person, a child of God. Then why does the woman must receive this prayer? What was impure that needs to be purified with this prayer of the church? Where is the impurity? My friends, what seeped inside the holy plan of God was evil desire. Who can ever boast that his marriage has been immaculate and holy, so holy that never existed any trace of evil desire, not even for a split second, from the very moment that Eve saw the fruit in paradise and desired it, evil desire came in. This termite that finds its way in all things, this desire in its broad sense. When I see the wardrobe of the other person and I become envious, when I become envious because of his wealth or his home, land or garden or his great flower beds, and I begin to covet and desire these things, and let's watch now because this is exactly what the Tenth commandment comes to correct. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not desire, the Greek says. This evil desire has entered inside marriage as well. Again, who can boast about a marriage that does not have a trace of this evil desire? And to be able to see this type of desire, he must have the eyes of a saint to be able to define it. So for this reason, and not that marriage in itself pollutes or defiles, because the marriage bed in itself does not defile, but what seeped in the marriage defiles. Therefore, he refers, uh, he refers to marriage without degrading it, but because of what finds its way in the marriage, he places this verb defiled or polluted. This is the mind of this verse, and I will show this immediately. He's not talking about extramarital relations or fornication because he says, for they are virgins. They are virgins, meaning unmarried. They were never married. But as I said, desire can be very broad. It is not just in the area of marriage or in the area of bodily or carnal desires. It is everywhere. But you will see this as we continue. These are the 144,000. And these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are flawless or spotless. No deceit with a broad meaning, but we will see this. Under the relative number of 144,000, which is 12 times 12,000, or 12,000 from each tribe, uh, from the 12 tribes of Israel, but the 12 tribes of Israel are symbolic of all the tribes, because today we have no tribes of Israel. It is symbolic of all nationalities, tongues, races, and colors, of all the peoples of the earth. 
all these are stated with this number, 12,000 times 12. So this number represents a great crowd of the elect who combine three characteristic qualities. Just to uh, backtrack a little bit, we must mention that this 144,000 is presented twice in the book of the Revelation, and they happen to be unrelated, these two numbers. Are, these two are different cases. Here we have the case of the 144,000 of the virgins or the unmarried. The 144,000 is not a sealed number, but a schematic number. It does not uh, it does not represent an exact number, but again, it's allegorical. It symbolizes a great number, and only the use of the 12 tribes shows the entire humanity. These are the elect of all humanity, and they are taken from the entire humanity of all centuries and all seasons. Based on this, they were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb, it shows that virginity, or the call not to marry, is a form of sacrifice that is offered to God. First fruits to God and to the Lamb refers to the life of virginity. But I will see this again as we continue. But now let's get back to the three characteristics of these 144,000. First and foremost, they lived a life of virginity. The text says they were not defiled by women, for they are virgins. The state of virginity is most ancient and of one age with humanity. Since Adam and Eve in paradise were virgins, and after the fall, and I underline this, after the fall and after their exit from paradise, then Adam knew his wife. And having conceived, she gave birth to a son, Cain. So Adam had relations with his wife outside of paradise, where he recognized Eve was his wife, and he had relations with her, and Cain was born. When? After the fall. Thus, in paradise, they lived in virginity. They maintained virginity. Please remember this. Virginity in the Old Testament is generally honored but it is not accentuated. And this because the purpose was for the people of God to be preserved in a multiplicity of numbers in order to survive their numerous historical adventures for the Messiah to come. It was necessary to maintain the existence, the presence of the chosen people for the Messiah to be born. However, virginity was not pursued, but it did hold a place of honor. Prophet Elijah was a virgin, Prophet Elisha was a virgin, and Saint John the Forerunner was a virgin. But virginity is reserved as an ultimate virtue of the New Testament. In the New Testament, it is not simply honored, but it is considered a great virtue, a virtue indeed. Initially, we must mention that virginity is not a natural or unnatural state but it is rather a supernatural state. It goes above nature. We could venture to say, along with St. John the Chrysostom, who says this in his great homily about virginity, this truly great homily, that virginity in reality is the state according to nature. Marriage is not the state according to nature or the ideal state since childbearing and marriage took place after the fall. God allowed this form having foreseen the fall. The form marriage was instituted because God foresaw the human fall. And furthermore, we will all return to this state of virginity or celibacy in the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, there is no marriage, no married life or childbearing. The Lord was very, very overt on this. In the kingdom of God, people do not get engaged or married, and consequently, there is no childbearing. All these forms are absent from the kingdom of God. So as you can see, we will all return to virginity, the original state. Therefore, marriage is an accommodation, a concession rather, if you will, because God foresaw the fall 
and along with the fall came death. And in the presence of death, it was necessary to work out the preservation of the human kind. This is why the form male and female was introduced. Of course, as we, as we saw, marriage is a phenomenon that followed the fall by concession. However, virginity is not for everyone. The Lord says in Matthew 19:11, but only those to whom it has been given, only to those that has been given, virginity can exist. From this we see that virginity is not simply a gift such as intelligence or height or beauty, but it is a virtue, and a virtue attained by much toil. Where the Lord said, to those to whom it has been given, he added the saying, he was able to accept it, let him accept it. He was able to handle this and live this type of lifestyle, let him go for it. So when he says, he who is able... And he who would be able to take the struggle, this shows that virginity is truly a virtue. Having a sharp mind or good looks is not a virtue. It is a gift that men receive from God without having to do anything, without any effort. I happen to be smart. Is this a virtue? Do smart people enter the kingdom of God? The tall, the attractive, those that have physical strength, strong arms or legs, those with great health, these are all gifts from God. But virginity is not only a gift, but it is truly a virtue because it has the element of personal effort or work. Virginity is a mystery, and this mystery can be approached from those who exercise this state of virginity correctly. And I mean correctly. St. Ignatius writes that the one who maintains virginity does so to honor the body of Christ. By the way, the person must not boast about his or her virginity. Boasting about this would be catastrophic. The reward would be lost. It would be totally lost. Therefore, this has to do with an offering. It is the very thing that I read to you in Revelations on a previous chapter, that they were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. In the Old Testament, the first lamb born in a flock would be sacrificed to God. The first wheat we harvest, we make into prosperum to be offered to God. This agrees with a phrase that he must not boast because he belongs to the body of Christ and he's serving in the honoring of the body of Christ, as the phrase of the Lord points out. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes, which means that they are somewhat of an extension or a part of the body of Christ. Therefore, these followers serve to honor the body of Christ. Just like when we have a miraculous icon and we take it for a procession or a litany, litania in Greek, the icon is carried with all the offerings of the faithful. You may have seen some miraculous icons with some gold or silver items on them, like eyes or legs or hands or what have you, whatever people offer. These are called anathemata in Greek or offerings. And they stay with the icon to show the appreciation and gratitude of those that were helped. And these go along with the icon as we do a service of litania or procession. This is how the Lord is escorted by those who chose a life of virginity who served to honor his body. Well, let's pay attention. I already mentioned this, but I will repeat it again one more time. The presence of virginity does not belittle or scorn the, sacra the sacrament of marriage. I simply told you what infiltrates the area of marriage. It would be a blessing to have marriages in the Lord with a full understanding of what it means to be married in the Orthodox Church, and how to keep the Church's blessing in our marriage, and we would be ecstatic. I told you this in the past. If you would only find the service book of marriage, the full sacrament of the wedding ceremony, there are small booklets on this, the same book that the priests have when they celebrate the sacrament. And if people would read this service word for word, then you would really be able to see what marriage is all about. I highly recommend this to all the married couples. St. Paul also writes 
in the first Corinthians, the epistle of the first uh, Corinthians chapter 7, about the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And why is that? Because the unmarried man concerns himself about the matters of the Lord, how to please the Lord, just like the unmarried woman concerns herself about the matters of the Lord, so she can be holy in body and spirit, which means that the married woman does have some instances where her body and her spirit may lose this holiness. And these are the very things that I was speaking about a few minutes ago. You must know, you must understand these things as well. I say you have to understand, you must know, because you come and tell me these things all the time. I hear these things every week in the thousands of confessions. However, after the fall, the bond of marriage, instead of becoming a helping hand for theosis, in many instances, it becomes a helping hand to pull people in hell. Why? Because people do not get married to assist each other to enter God's kingdom, but to go to hell holding hands. And this, when a man becomes captive to the woman's demands and desires, or the woman becomes carried away by the unholy lifestyle of the husband. Listen how the Holy Scripture touches on this point in the parable of the Great Supper. I just was married to a woman, and I cannot come. I need to be with my wife, so I will not come to the supper of the kingdom. The Lord said in Luke 21, 34, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. What are these daily cares of this life? The cares of this life that go along with marriage. The apostle says, But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may be attractive to his wife, how to please his wife. The married woman, says St. Paul, cares about the things of the world, how to be attractive to her husband. She uses every possible means, every possible method to please her husband. However, the unmarried is only concerned about pleasing the Lord. So the purpose of virginity is the full dedication of the person to God and to the matters of God, to work the works of God and nothing else. Whatever other motive or reasoning would not be an authentic or justifiable criterion to stay unmarried. Today, virginity is not only honored, but as you know, it is often ridiculed, and it is ridiculed because it fails the understanding of today's modern and rational Christian. And since it is slandered by the contemporaries, virginity becomes a constant confession of faith in the name of Christ, by whose grace virginity emanates. He who lives in virginity is a confessor and a martyr, and this because today's temptations that we run into to preserve virginity, the strength of martyrdom is often necessary. Virginity can only be preserved today by martyrdom, and in our days it faces such great opposition by people in general because they ridicule virginity, so its adherents must be constantly ready to defend and stand up for it. Second, the second characteristic of all those that follow the Lord is that they follow him everywhere he goes, anywhere he goes. They are devoted to the love and the work of Christ. The third quality of these followers is that in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are flawless. Here by deceit or lie in the Greek, what is meant is the state of living a life of truth. In other words, they have reached a state of holiness. I'm certain that among you here tonight, we may have only a few, but such special people do exist. I'm certain of it. They do exist. I feel compelled to say it. But I only wish and I pray for something, that the Lord may increase this number. My friends, there's no greater cause or desire to desire this great calling, this state of virginity, 
this total devotion and holiness. Someone feels that he truly lives his life. He's living the true life. This promise of the Lord serves as a powerful magnet, this word of the Lord, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And now the promises of the Lord are stated for the victors of this spiritual death and those who practice self-control and purity and celibacy. And the Lord says in his epistle to Sardis, chapter 3, verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious, the one who overcomes, will be clothed in white garments, meaning the divine glory. He will be enveloped by a divine light, the light of God. His name will be written and will not be blotted out from the book of life, meaning the eternal kingdom of God. It is remarkable that this authority of name recording in the book of life belongs to Christ only. Also this, I will not blot out his name. This reveals the possibility of the disqualification of the athlete of Christ who starts well, but he does not finish the race. The possibility of having one's name blotted out shows that you can lose your salvation, and these words of the Lord destroy the Protestant heresy of predestination, the notion that once saved, always saved. You can be saved, but you can also be blotted out, just like in the case of the five virgins who did not enter the kingdom of God. Finally, as we also read in the Gospels, the Lord himself will confess the name of the victors before his Father and the angels. My friends, God has promised and has prepared very great and magnificent things for the victors of his gospel. Let's not procrastinate any longer. Time is passing and the end is coming quickly. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.